Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. This is the second of two weeks on the road for me. Last week was split between South Carolina and California. And this week, it's all Arkansas, baby. So looking forward to a great week of work here in Arkansas. Uh, upcoming events this spring, as I've mentioned before, uh, the two-day uh, Grading from the Inside Out virtual training. That's going to be April 4th and 11th. Uh, Standards-based learning in action, face-to-face two-day training, April 13th and 14th in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Uh, the Assessment and Grading Conference, that'll be in Atlanta, Georgia, April 24th through 26th. I'm presenting on the 24th and 25th because grading from the inside out, the two-day face-to-face training will be in Salt Lake City, April 26th and 27th. And of course, as I've mentioned before, our assessment team, our assessment center has a big assessment institute in Las Vegas, Nevada, May 24th through 26th. I'll have links in the show notes for those events. Uh, Should they be of interest to you, also uh, you can find those events on the Solution Tree website. Also, again, want to remind you that I have a new book set for release uh, this coming April, just over a month away. April 21st is the release date. It's called Redefining Student Accountability, a Proactive Approach to Teaching Behavior Outside the Gradebook. Uh, It's all about how we teach responsibility and and how we teach other student attributes as well without distorting their achievement levels or their achievement grades. You can pre-order that book right now. It ships April 21st. Again, I have a link in the show notes for that too. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. Uh, Big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I, of course, appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Jessica Vance. Jessica is an advocate for inquiry-based learning. She is also the author of Leading with the Lens of Inquiry, Cultivating Conditions for Curiosity, and empowering agency. And that's what we're going to focus our conversation on. And in Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk about 10 ways that chat GPT can be used for classroom assessment. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Jessica Vance is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by exploring the advantages and disadvantages of ChatGPT in K-12 education. Now, ChatGPT, or as it's known, Chat Generated Pre-Trained Transformer, is a cutting-edge artificial intelligence language model developed by OpenAI. It has the capability of generating human-like responses to natural language input, and it's been widely used in various fields, including education. Now, in recent years, ChatGPT has been increasingly used in K-12 education. It has been touted as a tool that can enhance personalized learning, a tool that can improve engagement, and provide 24-hour, 7-day-a-week access to feedback and support. However, there are, of course, concerns about its limitations, such as the inability to understand complex language and its potential for bias. So I want to talk about those advantages and disadvantages. We have five advantages, five disadvantages of using ChatGPT in K-12 education. So let's first begin with the advantages. The first advantage with ChatGPT is personalized learning. ChatGPT can be used to provide personalized learning experiences for students. The model is capable of analyzing student responses, providing feedback that is tailored to the unique learning needs of the student. This can help students, of course, improve their understanding of a concept and to progress toward their own achievement or proficiency at their own pace. So that's one advantage is personalized learning. The second advantage is it's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. ChatGPT, of course, can be accessed at any time, which means students can receive immediate feedback and they can receive support outside of the regular school hours. This can be particularly useful for students who need extra help or students who are studying outside of the traditional classroom setting. So the availability is certainly a huge advantage. The third one is efficiency. 
ChatGPT can handle multiple students at once, making it a really efficient tool for teachers to use in their classrooms. This frees up time for teachers to work with other students or work on other tasks or activities, uh, maybe even frees up teachers to do some planning and even some grading while students have access uh, to uh, ChatGPT. The fourth one is engagement. Another advantage of ChatGPT is it's an engaging and an interactive tool for students. It can provide real-time feedback and encourage students to ask questions, which can help to keep them motivated and interested in what they're learning. So it's kind of interactive and it allows students that opportunity to engage. And the fifth one, of course, is that it is cost-effective. ChatGPT is a cost-effective tool for schools and for teachers. It eliminates the need for hiring additional staff or for purchasing expensive educational materials. And it can be used across multiple subjects and across multiple grade levels. So there is, of course, a lot of cost effectiveness that comes with it. So those would be five uh, advantages, uh, personalized learning, 24 hours a day, seven days a week availability. It's efficient. It, it, it really lends itself to engagement. And of course, it's cost effective. But let's let's talk a little bit about the disadvantages as well. Uh, one disadvantage, of course, is the lack of personal interaction. ChatGPT lacks the personal interaction that is essential for building relationships between students and teachers. It can't replace the human connection that is crucial for effective learning. This can be particularly problematic for students who are struggling or for students you know, who just require additional support. A second disadvantage of ChatGPT is its uh, limited understanding. ChatGPT has a limited understanding of context and nuance in language. It may not be able to provide accurate feedback or answer complex questions. This can be particularly problematic for advanced students who maybe require more in-depth explanations or are trying to push their thinking. The third disadvantage is it's obviously technologically dependent. It's dependent on technology, right? So ChatGPT requires access to technology. It requires a stable internet connection. This, of course, can be a barrier for some students in schools, uh, especially those who live in rural areas, uh, maybe low-income areas. Uh, it can also be challenging for students who are not familiar with technology or who have limited access to devices. So the technology side of this is is potentially a downside. Uh, a fourth disadvantage of ChatGPT in K-12 education is privacy concerns. ChatGPT, of course, collects and stores data on student interactions, which would raise some concerns about privacy and security. There is also the risk that the data collected by ChatGPT could be used for purposes other than improving student learning. So there's always that risk when you're using an online tool. And the fifth disadvantage is bias. ChatGPT is trained on a large data set, which may include biased information. Now, this can lead to the model producing biased responses that reinforce maybe stereotypes or reinforce discrimination. It can also perpetuate inequalities in education by favoring certain students or groups over others because of the, say, flawed data set that it's been trained on. So those are the five disadvantages, right? Uh, lack of personal interaction, limited understanding, dependence on technology, privacy concerns, and bias. So, you know, ChatGPT has both advantages and disadvantages when it comes to its use in K-12 education. Now, while it can provide personalized learning experiences, improve efficiency, and enhanced engagement, it also has limitations, such as its lack of personal interaction and limited understanding of language. And there's also concerns, as I've mentioned, about dependency on technology, privacy and security, and the potential for bias. And the potential for bias is true for any educational technology. So again, as you can see, many pros and cons to using ChatGPT in K-12 education. Now, one more thing I should mention. ChatGPT wrote that entire opening 
for me. Joining me this week is Jessica Vance. Jessica is the Enrichment and Environment Coordinator in the Round Rock ISD School District in uh, North Austin. She is also the author of the book, Leading with the Lens of Inquiry, Cultivating Conditions for Curiosity and Empowering Agency. And that is going to be the focus of our conversation today. So Jessica, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. It's really great to be here. It's great to have you here, of course. Uh, Thanks for taking the time. Um, I've been a follower of you, a follower of your work. We've never met before, but it's great to use this podcast to meet new people and talk about great ideas. So, and I think, you know, the idea of leading with an inquiry focus is quite a fascinating concept. So I'm really excited to dig in. But before we do that, um, as I typically do, uh, let's let's hear the rundown of the career. Um, highlight for, for those who may not be familiar with your work, your professional journey so far, mm-hmm. the pathway from the beginning of your education career to where you ended up today. Yeah, so I grew up in California, Southern California, and um, started off my career in actually um, a time in the economy where there was not a lot of teaching jobs, which I know is very opposite to what we're experiencing now, um, and ended up landing myself in a private school. So super traditional, very textbook driven. Um, the expectation was actually to finish the workbook, I think, and I quote from the leader at that time. Um, and, you know, as a, as a baby teacher, if you will, I just said, okay, and kind of um, worked my way through, but never quite felt like it fit. You know, I wanted to be creative and explore, and that's just not something that was necessarily valued. Um, but, you know, from the challenges and barriers that we face, of course, we learn so many things. And um, I, my husband got a job in Austin, Texas, and so we relocated. And um, where I found myself actually having a lot of opportunities for different types of um, professional roles and um ended up accepting a position at an IB school. And at the time, I didn't know even what that was. Um, I just really loved the principal. I got a really good sense of you know the school and what it was that they valued. They were actually not even a um, authorized school at the time. They were a candidate school. So a lot of personal inquiry, if you will, and got to dive in deep into inquiry-based teaching and learning. And what does that look like within the structure and framework of the IB curriculum? Of course, letting Um, was not something that I was used to as that traditional model of having to teach to the textbook. And so I just um, had some really amazing leaders, instructional coaches help guide me. And I just soaked up everything that there was and um, learned how to let my learners guide while balancing the curriculum and asking a lot of questions, trying a ton of things and failing. Um, But having some really amazing coaches, like I said, and leaders on the side, just show me um, and and help guide me towards what is best practice in the classroom. Um, And I knew I've always wanted to be a leader in some sort of way. I thought it was an instructional coach just because I had some really great ones myself. And then um, uh, instructional coach positions, actually, when I was looking to step outside of the classroom to kind of try my hand on something else, ended up popping up. But an IB coordinator position did. And so I stepped into that role. And um, those of you, your listeners who've read my book, I, I kind of outline a little bit more about my thinking and thought process and stepping outside of the classroom and um, being an IB coordinator um, and, and what that has done for me as a leader and, um, and also just an educator in general as a inquiry. 
My current role now is Enrichment Environment Coordinator, which I always tell everybody is the coolest job on the planet. Um, of course, also consultant and author, but the, the campus that I get to um, lead at we have an outdoor space, um, lots of outdoor spaces, actually. So we embrace the outdoors and connection to nature and the environment. And how can we utilize that and leverage that as a tool um, for our curriculum, but also just that social, emotional well-being and awareness. And the enrichment part is how are we really tapping into the curiosities of our students um, and how we're using those to guide um, our curriculum and our next steps with one another. So I get to work with kids and with adults, which is really the best of both worlds, in my opinion. Okay, Jessica, but I think we've kind of buried the lead here. Uh, as I said in the introduction, your title is Enrichment and Environment Coordinator. I think that's probably a title that is the envy of many teachers and educators out there. So tell us about that title and your role uh, in Round Rock. Yeah, so um, I get to support both students and teachers within my role. And what that means is I support teachers in um, – really planning and considering their learners' curiosities and interests to drive their instruction, of course, balancing the curriculum. Um, and then we back up to um, a nature space, um, a preserve, if you will, and we have a lot of outdoor gardens. So really working with teachers to consider how we really ground ourselves in our space and place to make those curricular connections, of course, are really valuable and really important when we're in our edible garden. There's so many amazing connections that our learners can make. Um, as it relates to curriculum and standards, but also just that social and emotional well-being and awareness and how when we are noticing our students need a little bit of that brain break or a little bit of that pause, how we can just go take a walk outside in the pollinator garden or take a hike down one of our trails and what that does for that social emotional well-being and awareness and providing our students an opportunity to reflect and pause and notice these things within themselves. So really getting to... Um, support teachers in figuring out what does that look like and sound like, um, and then really getting to engage with students, asking the things that they're curious about and helping um, to find different industry experts and connections within the Austin community to be able to have those rich learning experiences um, and to be able to have focused time to find those resources for teachers is pretty special and valuable. And so sitting in the learning with them is something that I am really passionate about and really value each and every day within my role. You, uh, you must love your job. I do. I do. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Uh, I'm sure, like I said, you're, you're probably the envy of so many out there right now listening, going, I wish I had Jessica's job. Um, tell us about inquiry-based learning. Where did that passion come from? I know that you are one of the leading voices out there when it comes to uh, focusing on an inquiry-based focus on, mm -hmm. on learning. We're going to get to the leading part, but just mm -hmm. generally speaking, when it comes to inquiry-based learning, where did that passion come from? How did that develop? So, you know, diving headfirst into the IB, I had no idea what I, inquiry was, actually. Right. It's funny enough, yeah. um, when I was in college, I took a backwards design course, and I remember hating it because it was so confusing, <laughs> and I couldn't understand <laughs> why she was having us observe the moon and not teach us what it was that we were supposed to learn right away, and it was so backwards, of course, backwards design, um, that yeah, anything yeah. that I was used to... Um, but it's funny, when I accepted that role, I was teaching fifth grade, and I immediately remembered that course and thinking about what was so different with this type of learning is that I was getting the feedback from my learners to drive my instruction in a way that was really meaningful and really tangible. Um, and so that meant that I needed to ask a lot of questions and that 
asking questions was really critical for my first steps in the coaching work that I do. It's always usually something that I suggest to give a go. If you don't know what inquiry is, um, because when we ask a question, then it, it helps us pause and be really present in the moment. Of course, we need to listen for the answer of co- uh, too. Um, but that way, when we're asking questions, we are modeling curiosity, which is, of course, um, tied to an inquiry approach to teaching and learning. And so, um, yeah, the IB was where I learned about the structure um, of the inquiry cycle, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. I still, to this day, reference and love and utilize the work of Kath Murdoch. She is, you know, uh, definitely mm-hmm. a prolific in this area. And so learning more about inquiry from her, of course, there's lots of amazing, amazing educators all over the globe too, as well. And so just mm-hmm. kind of diving headfirst into what that looks like and sounds like, but I do appreciate the IB gave me the structure to be able to feel comfortable to kind of dive into this world that is, is pretty ambiguous. Yeah, certainly uh, the MYP is uh, a really sort of inquiry-driven approach to learning, which I I I think is fascinating. And certainly you see the engagement uh, with students uh, around the world as I go work with schools, uh, you know, overseas, et cetera, the schools that have implemented the MYP and the inquiry-based approach to to learning. Uh, You can see just the amazing work that that those students are doing. Okay, so let's uh, shift. Leading with a Lens of Inquiry, Cultivating Conditions for Curiosity, Empowering Agency. That's the book. In that book, you make the case that inquiry be used as a framework for leadership. You write this. If inquiry teaching and learning with something is something we value in the classroom because of the impact it had on student learning, then why wouldn't we facilitate adult learning in our building in that same way? Mm-hmm. So, Jessica, the question would be, what does that look like? Yeah, so... Um... It can look and sound so many ways, which is what I love about I um, inquiry, but I also know is really frustrating for those who are like, just tell me what it is. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So the first thing, and I've already referenced this, is ask your learners. Ask your learners the things that they're curious about. And sometimes our learners have never, or our teachers, have never been asked this question. What do you want to grow in? What are you curious to explore? So um, I know that the campus that I currently lead at, that was not necessarily something that was asked of the group at the time. And what they've continued to share back with us is you ask, we share, and then you listen and you take action with our feedback, right? So if they're really interested in or want to get better at their phonics, phonics instruction, then I make sure to find opportunities for them to go do that. And what could that look like and sound like? So I love utilizing the thinking routine compass points as a way to get some feedback from my learners. Um, It gives a nice structure, right, for those who lead. um, And they've never asked their uh, teachers what it is that they're curious about or they're getting kind of crickets and blank stares. A thinking routine could be a really great place to start. Um, I think also, too, is really evaluating and asking yourself, where are your learners at and what skills do they need, knowing that you have this vision of this school that you're serving. So um, if you know that, you know, your, you, your learners need to get better at maybe questioning protocol or assessment or feedback, you first have to stop and pause and say, where are my learners at? And if you don't know then you need to go ask and find out, right? Maybe it could be through a provocation or reading an article and using a thinking routine to gather some evidence and feedback that way first. So I never plan professional development or professional learning without getting some feedback or data, if you will, from my learners. 
And I'll also nudge your listeners to consider that questions are a form of data. I think too often times we think as questions are an answer and yes, questions are related to curiosity, but I love to look at questions as a form of data. So if I have questions or I'm collecting questions for my teachers and they're maybe the skinnier side or kind of more basic questions, then that's where I know that my learners are at. And I need to provide learning experiences and professional learning time for them to get to sort and make sense of what that looks like. And as their questions evolve over time, because their knowledge and skills and capacity has changed over time, then I know too that my professional learning will change. So even though as a leader, we have a general framework of where it is that we're going to go, I always, always, always leave space for my learners to be able to inform my next steps. And uh, currently, actually, Tom, I have um, a PD that I'm leading on Wednesday, and I keep butting up to kind of like... I don't know what to do next. And I was sitting with my my um, principal on Friday and we were talking about this and she's like, well, what evidence have you gotten from the group? Do you know where they're at? And I was like, nope, great, problem solved. Now I know where to go next, right? And so right. even as an inquiry yeah. leader who speaks about this and coaches others, I get stuck in that rut too, where what do I need to mm -hmm. do, right? You get, it's really easy to be that managerial leader and go to yeah. that space. Um, yeah. And so I'd say, yeah, some thinking routines and get uh, questions from your learners and mm -hmm. that um, we remain rooted in the things that we're value, what the things that we value rather. And the things that we value as inquiry leaders are co-construction, our curiosity, mm -hmm. our reflection, right? And so where are mm -hmm. those evidence in your professional <clears throat> learning plan and guidance as a leader? Right. Um, you, you are speaking to me right there because one of the things that I think I've honed over time, and this is just through practice, and I'm sure you're the same in workshops and facilitating PD, which is that when I listen to somebody's question, it, I know where they're at and I know how to respond in terms of how much depth or how much detail or where to go. I can tell where they are in the process. Certainly for me, it would be in the area of assessment and grading and all of that. Mm -hmm. It would be, you know, I, well, I, I can hear the question and I kind of know where they're at. So I love that idea of, of collecting questions. Can I drill down a little bit on this, on this model or framework? Because mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, now I don't want to pretend like we were ahead of the curve because this was such no. a pedestrian attempt back in 2009 when I worked at a central office position. But we were, we were toying with the idea of taking an inquiry-based approach to school growth plans. To, so I'm, I want to know, like, is your framework about individual teacher learning or is it about really the school also, maybe, maybe it's an and, mm -hmm. the school developing a question of curiosity that they mm -hmm. collectively want to explore through mm -hmm. some action research and inquiry-based investigation. Do you, do you do that as well? Yes, I would definitely say it's the and. Um, okay. I, ha I have districts that I'm working with where we'll just take a look at their vision statement or maybe they'll come up with an essential question. And um, how can those um, essential questions or that vision statement or direction of where it is that the district wants to go be really um, open ended enough for us to be able to explore it at the depth and complexity that um, we uniquely have to based off of our learners. So I'd say yes and. Um, mm -hmm. there's definitely space for both, right? I don't think it's an either or it's just being able to be open enough to see where it is that it takes you. So mm -hmm. as a school leader, we have our vision statement, we have a three-year action plan and we have goals. Um, but how can we really be open enough to seeing where those goals can be the driving force, but also not being pigeonholing us of where it is that we need to be and how it is right. it that we do that with our teachers 
Well, we make and keep our thinking and learning visible as an adult learning community. So within some communal um, spaces, we have our goals up there on what I like to call a learning wall. And as we're engaging in learning, we're adding evidence up there. So it could be sticky notes from questions. It could be a piece of chart paper from a staff PD that's thrown up there that's added as some evidence in an artifact of where it is that we are. And then we pause as leaders and we look and see what is the evidence showing us? What next steps do we need to take? We're asking our learners too, what connections are you making? Where do you think it is that we need to go? We're kind of at that stage right now with a lot of um, schools that I'm working with, and I'm sure you know as well, like where are we going to go next year? How can we look at what data is being presented, where our learners are at, and how might this help us inform our next steps so that we can kind of plan moving forward? Yeah, I think that's a great approach. I mean, like I said, we we were toying with it. I know our principals loved it because first, at first, because our school growth plans went from 85 pages to right. four to six. And that was a, a welcome, uh, you know, reprieve from from the pages and pages. However, it was really challenging. And I know that I certainly had, you know, very limited experience with the whole process of inquiry, again, back to 2009, mm-hmm. when we implemented this. And um, it was challenging to find a question that was sharp enough and clear enough, especially we actually found that to be challenging. Uh, middle school wasn't so bad, but elementary K-5, such a range of students and a range of, of instructional programming, and even high school where things get specialized, mm-hmm. we found that challenging. I think if I had a chance to do it over again now, I would be much clearer on that. But I think that's a, a, a really wise approach, uh, both for the individual, but also for the school to rally around a sort of a, a question of inquiry that that leads you down that sort of research part. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about now, uh, I want to go to a couple of challenging scenarios mm-hmm. that I want to throw at you and just give give us a sense of how you might respond. Let's start with this one. Mm -hmm. And and maybe you've dealt with this already. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you handle a situation where somebody uh, says to you, or there's a small group of teachers who might say to you, uh, you know what, Jessica, I'm not really into this whole inquiry-based PD thing. It's Mm -hmm. not really my thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just like my PD the traditional way. I just want to sit and get and somebody tell me what to do. And that's what I like to do. This whole questions of curiosity, not my thing. How do you handle that situation? So I'd lean in with a question, Tom, and my learners and those who know me very well, that's how I respond. And I respond with a question as a means to find out more. And also because I need a pause because I'm human. (laughs) (laughs) When we hear these questions or such as this, which is definitely different than the things that I value, of course, mm-hmm. the human in me wants to be like, well, what do you mean? This is the best, right? <laughs> like, I get Sorry. it, right? Uh, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. So instead, I love to lean into questions to be able to give myself a pause. Um, and then to model what I know um, everybody appreciates is to an opportunity to, to be heard, right? So if mm-hmm. I had um, an educator, a group of educators come and share that, I might say, you know, I'm really curious, can you tell me more about what that looks like and sounds like? Because maybe their version of a traditional approach is not necessarily so far off with some of the ideas that I'm proposing or some of the ways that we're engaging in the learning. And what a missed opportunity it would be if I didn't ask that question to see what it is that they're actually talking about when they're defining traditional or they're talking about this is not working for them. And so when I can lean in and ask a question such as that, It's not trying to like wiggle my way through and figure out how can I make them believe what I believe. It's truly to have an understanding of what it is that they are um, finding a barrier of or with or about. 
um, and then um, giving them space to, to share so I can build that relationship with them. So there's that psychological safety. And then that also informs me about what my next steps might be. So yes, I've had that on campuses that I've been a leader at. And um, that's where they're at, right? I can't fault them. Just like I was sharing before when I was in that college class, I was like, this lady's crazy, right? <laughs> um, and so I love to, yeah. to lean in with a question, again, modeling dispositions of an inquiry leader and then giving myself some space to find out a little bit more. I'm jotting down notes. Um, I'm asking the things that they might be curious about, right? And even if they say something such as simple as like phonics, I'll give that as like a plain dry answer because it seems pretty traditional. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's still space for me to honor that traditional approach because it's not an either yeah. or, right? It's a both and yeah. more, right? Yeah. But how do I yeah. take that and how could I then um, create a learning experience and opportunity for them to go focus on that traditional skill, but then right. how might I utilize this framework as a way to be able to model and nudge them towards more of an inquiry-based approach? Yeah. I'm curious as to whether you found this or not. And I would say that um, I have found this much more often than not. Uh, I don't want to quote a statistic because, you know, I don't know what it would be. But I would say two out of every three times, maybe it's three quarters of the time, what looks like resistance is often a lack of clarity. Would you agree with that? Yes. And um, yeah, yeah. probably also just maybe um, afraid to take a risk because right. when they have taken a risk in the past, it's been not received very well or, mm -hmm. you know, the experience wasn't amazing. And so there's yeah. that psychological safety thing too. But yes, the clarity yeah. piece is huge. There's so, there's so much of that historically too. When you think about, you know, sometimes people are resistant to ideas because they feel a little bit burnt. 15 years ago, they tried to implement something and didn't get the support of the district or their principal didn't support them. And now they're feeling a little bit jaded and suddenly this new idea comes along. Oh, but I'm supposed to rally around your idea. So you never know where people are coming from. And I think it's important like, to ask those questions and find out where, where they're coming from for sure. Okay, let's go to the second scenario. Similar, and I think you, I think you touched on this a little bit uh, in your first response, but let's, let's get back to this idea of how would or should an inquiry leader respond to teachers who insist on using traditional practices, mm -hmm. right? I'm thinking about things like zeros or, you know, penalties or grading everything or overusing direct instruction or, mm -hmm. or, you know, programs like, you know, phonics and all the things that might be more traditional that uh, I'm not, I'm not against phonics, by the way, but I mean, just say like there's very tradition, traditional approaches mm -hmm. to these ideas. Um, how does an inquiry leader respond to a teacher who insists on using those traditional practices? Yeah, so the first stage of an inquiry cycle is to tune in, right? So how do we tune in to our learners' thinking? And we ask ourselves, what kind of thinking do we want our learners to engage in? Or what kind of thinking do we want to nudge them for? And one of the inquiry moves is a provocation, right? So how are we going to provoke their thinking? Not push them over the edge, but how are we going to provoke their thinking in a way that's inviting them to the table? So provocation can come in the form of a podcast. It can come in the form of an article or a series of videos, if you will. A provocation might even just be a learning walk within our building, right? Maybe there's some really fantastic things that we're seeing within our building. And how might we invite um, a conversation around something that's a little bit more traditional um, through a provocation? But the intentionality around the provocation 
is everything. We can't just say, I want to read this article because now they're all of a sudden going to shift their thinking towards not giving zeros. We know that's not going to happen. So how are we going to anchor that provocation and some collaborative structures and um, opportunities for our learners to come together, to be able to share their thinking? How might we leverage the power of a thinking routine in order to nudge their thinking to a certain place? And where are we going to give space for all ideas to be able to explore for all of our learners to have the opportunity to pause and reflect and think about their thinking and how it could potentially, or it has potentially changed over time. So Mm -hmm. I um, would nudge any leader, any any, um, teacher that they're trying to perhaps nudge a little bit um, further within their practice, whatever teaching method or strategy or skill it is, what kind of thinking do you wanna provoke within your learners and how might you do that in a way that honors their voice while also, um, of course, nudging their thinking and, and, and provides them an opportunity to explore questions along the way. And again, we model the model, right? We want our teachers right. to do this in the classroom with their students. So we have to do this as well with our adult learners because they're not going to do the things that they don't experience themselves first. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's wise advice. And certainly just, again, not trying to push people too far, not to push them over the edge or, or make them feel too intimidated. Cause it is challenging for someone who's an experienced teacher to have a new idea come along. And, uh, we sometimes forget that it isn't just that simple to snap out of it, right? We, we have to be understanding of where people are and that they have to unravel maybe 20 years of a career to come to terms with some of the newness, uh, that, that we're talking about for sure. Okay. So let's, let's finish up by exploring a little bit back to inquiry-based learning for students mm-hmm. and, and think about it from the teacher's perspective. Mm-hmm. For teachers who are wanting to transform their classrooms into an inquiry-based learning environment, what are some of the, my, my colleagues and I tend to use this term, and I used it last week with Shelly Moore as well, but this mm-hmm. idea of dangerous detours and seductive shortcuts. Um, what are some ways that teachers could fall prey to those dangerous detours and seductive shortcuts that could get them off track when it comes to inquiry-based learning and make them think that they've implemented inquiry-based learning when they actually haven't. Like mm-hmm. this idea of inquiry light, if you will. Mm-hmm. How do I how do I make sure I avoid some of those things in, in my implementation? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'd say, you know, oftentimes some teachers will share, well, I do inquiry because I take or I collect questions from my learners. And okay. when I hear a response like that, usually it's, I'd love to know a little bit more about what do you do with those questions? And sometimes that question is enough of a stop and pause moment of like, they don't do anything, right? Or they just stay on their, their wonder wall because they've forgotten about them. Or they'll tell me, yeah, but I have other curriculum to teach. And so then that's like the invitation for me to ask, you know, I wonder how we might connect some of those questions to your curriculum or where might there be spaces for that? Mm-hmm. So I think um, while collecting learner questions is, of course, something that we want to do as an inquiry leader and as an inquiry teacher, what we do with the questions is what actually really matters because just the fact that collecting them doesn't mean I actually value them. So it's how can we show our learners that we value them? We don't need to answer every single question. There, there doesn't need to be a space for an answer for every question. That would actually be a traditional teaching model of being able to have an answer for every question, and that's not the purpose of them. So I'd say that's definitely a misstep and a misconception um, I once had, too, as an inquiry teacher, as I thought I was doing inquiry by collecting questions. Um, and the, I think the other misstep, too, Tom, would be reflection. 
if we ask our learners to reflect on things or, or to turn and talk, I would probably say that you have listeners nodding their heads. Yeah, I do that. Yeah, I ask my learners to reflect. But is there an intentionality around the turn and talk or around the reflection that I think is the misstep? So if we're asking our learners to turn and talk to the partner, are we giving them an opportunity to pause and reflect first, right, before they go turn and talk? Are we leveraging the time that they're talking to their partner or to their peer or they're providing some feedback? Are we being really intentional with scaffolding what kind of conversation do we want them to have? If we're asking them to move around the room and talk with their peers, that is just another activity that's not really, um, we're not leveraging the power of the collective, of the co-construction of what that can look like and sound like. Um, if we're just letting the students move around the room and then we're not walking around and listening. So I'd say reflection is often a misstep as well with some teachers. I know that's some work that I'm currently engaged in with some teachers right now. And so these like minor tweaks and changes within our practice all of a sudden leverage the, the, the power of all of the voices in the room. And it becomes this space where students truly feel like they have a voice and a piece and a part of the learning of what's happening. So even if I'm, I'm teaching math or fractions, which aren't very exciting, how am I still inviting the learners into that space? Um, and I know I said there was only two, but I'll say a third one, Tom. So forgive me. <laughs> it's okay. um, no, no problem. Uh, a provocation. Um, I think oftentimes uh, some teachers will say, well, I have an anticipatory set, right? I have an anticipatory set. I'm, I have this like gotcha moment or this thing that I'm like sparking aha with my students. And I'll mm -hmm. say, well, I'm curious to know what kind of thinking or feeling did you want to evoke with them, right? And so I'd say a provocation is not an anticipatory set, but a provocation is this intentional move that we make just as I've outlined before as a leader and asking ourselves, what kind of thinking do we want our learners to engage in? And how am I documenting and making and keeping the thinking visible to be able to be leveraged later as an opportunity for assessment and reflection um, that we can all benefit from and um, connect with one another. Yeah, that often separates, you know, things, the level of intentionality, you know, we're, we're not just doing things, there's an intent behind it. And there's a larger picture that we're trying to service. I mean, you're, you're speaking my language when it comes to the collecting of questions and the using those questions to, to make further steps forward. That's the epitome of formative assessment right there. Yep. Um, and using that to, to make instructional decisions for sure. Uh, we got two questions left, Jessica, as we finish up uh, our conversation, uh, as we, I mean, this is a fascinating conversation and certainly I could, could spend a lot more time talking with you about inquiry-based learning. You're clearly passionate and you're, you're passionate about it and your expertise is, is obvious. But let's finish up with two, uh, we're going to zoom out a little bit. Uh, we'll finish with two questions I typically end the interviews with. One is a heavier question, one is a lighter question, as you know. So the first question, and you can take this in any direction you want to, mm -hmm. uh, doesn't have to be about inquiry-based learning, it could be about anything mm -hmm. that you want to talk about. But the, the question is simply this, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Um, the mindset and well-being of teachers. You know, as a leader, I'm really passionate about my learners, which are teachers. And so my teachers on my campus and, of course, globally, those that I get to support. And how do we help support their mindset and their well-being in an industry that we know needs it? And how does leading with this lens and honoring um, our learners' voice 
and to really be able to using their voice to guide our next steps as leaders, something that we're really considering as um, as we lead schools or districts are considering their next steps, right? We can't just talk mm-hmm. at teachers. We really need to listen for the things that they're sharing and, and the challenges and barriers that they're facing are real. And how can we support them with, um, you know, giving them some more time or taking some things off of their plate or, or reconfiguring what we have on their plate in order to best meet their needs as just real human beings. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. It's definitely something to be concerned about. You see it more and more, uh, the mindsets of, of educators, uh, they're, they're, they're feeling it from the outside externally, the pressures and, and, uh, and, and, for, and also internally, just wanting to do right for their students and, mm-hmm. and, and knowing that students coming out of the pandemic are, mm-hmm. in many cases, in very different mindsets. And so, yeah, yeah the well-being of, of teachers is something definitely to be concerned about. Uh, let's finish up with the lighter question. Now, this is going to be a tough question. Listeners, you know the question that's coming. But Jessica lives in Austin, Texas. So I gave Jessica permission to give us her top five or her top two or her top three, because honestly, Austin is a fabulous city with so many great restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love food. You live in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. The question is quite simply, where are the best places to eat in Austin, Texas? So yeah, choosing just a handful <laughs> is not easy. Um, I, I chose uh three actually and all the, the disclaimer of this is that i i eat fish but i don't eat meat so nothing on my list is barbecue so i'm so sorry if you have something okay. on the list that you need that's barbecue or meat related but uh yeah. um so veracruz tacos you have to go mm-hmm. to veracruz tacos they have amazing okay. breakfast tacos amazing tacos all day long there's a couple locations throughout austin um it's kind of just more of a casual place but it's so it's so delicious. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two other ones are actually owned by the same company um, or the same owner, rather. Um, one is called mm-hmm. Suerte, and it's a fusion of mm, Mexican food, if you will, but it's not Tex-Mex. It's definitely okay. a little bit higher elevated, but it's so delicious and it's so interesting and unique. And then the mm-hmm. other one is Este, which is... Um, just this other, I mean, I can't even begin to describe all the great things that are on your plate, but if you are big mm-hmm. into seafood, definitely um, would encourage you to go to Este and I'd say both Suerte and Este, the people who work there are so passionate and so like love their job. So just even talking to them <laughs> is the experience really. So um, yeah, those are just three, but of course I could have given like six more. Oh, I, I know you can and could. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm okay when it I've been to Austin enough to know where to find good barbecue. So, yes. you know, it's kind of nice that you went off uh, a little bit off script there in a way, because I think that's what most would gravitate mm-hmm. to is like this barbecue spot or that barbecue. One of my favorite spots actually is outside of Austin called the Salt Lake Barbecue, uh-huh. uh, which is a really fabulous spot. And they have great spices. They've got great dry rubs. You can buy them in the airport. And uh, anyway, a little plug for Salt Lake. Yeah. They don't sponsor the podcast, but uh-huh. why not? <laughs> Anyway, it's all good. Uh, But yeah, it's one of my favorite cities. uh, So we'll definitely check those out for sure. Listeners, you can and should follow Jessica on social media. The handles for Twitter and Instagram both are at Jess underscore Vance EDU. Uh, That's again, Twitter and Instagram there. The website is www.leadingwithinquiry.com. And of course, the book we, we have to make sure leading with a lens of inquiry, cultivating the conditions for curiosity and empowering agency. Uh, fascinating conversation, Jessica. Really appreciate you taking the opportunity to be here. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Tom. It was a pleasure and hopefully I'll get to see you soon. 
This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk about 10 ways ChatGPT can be utilized specifically for classroom assessment. Now, ChatGPT has the ability to understand and generate human-like responses, so it really can assist with a wide range of assessment activities, including evaluation, including testing, and, uh, and feedback. So let's talk about 10, not, not in any particular order. This is not a top 10. Uh, this is just 10 ways in which ChatGPT could be utilized for assessment. So the first one, which I think is pretty obvious, is providing feedback on written assignments. ChatGPT can provide detailed feedback on written assignments, highlighting areas of strength and areas that need strengthening, offering students suggestions for improvement, and providing examples and resources uh, to support learners as they grow toward proficiency. Uh, number two would be ChatGPT can create automated assessments. ChatGPT can generate automated assessments that allow learners to test their knowledge on specific topics. It can help teachers create questions and prompts that students can use. The model can create uh, a wide range of questions as well, including multiple choice questions, true, false, short answer, uh, lots of different ways that they can create automated automated assessment questions. Number three, uh, ChatGPT can grade assignments, can grade them automatically. That helps teachers a little bit reduce time and effort required for manual grading. Uh, the model can evaluate the quality of work and provide detailed feedback to learners, as we talked about in the, in the first one, when it came to feedback on written assignments. So feedback is a big part of what ChatGPT can do in terms of strengthens, uh, strengths and that which needs strengthening. The fourth uh, use in classroom assessment would be personalized learning. And this was mentioned in the opening as well, that ChatGPT can generate personalized learning plans for, for learners uh, based on their feedback, based on performance data. And I would imagine that would mean we would be utilizing the tool long-term, which would then allow ChatGPT to analyze performance data. Uh, the the ChatGPT model can also recommend learning resources and activities that are tailored to each learner's needs, uh, their abilities, and also their preferences. The fifth use in classroom assessment is conducting interviews. ChatGPT can be used to conduct remote interviews, allowing educators to assess learners' knowledge and skills. The model can also ask questions and evaluate responses, actually making the interview process maybe more efficient and maybe somewhat more objective um, in terms of that remoteness especially. Uh, the sixth way that you could utilize uh, class, uh, Ch Chat GPT in the classroom is analyzing performance data. Again, I suppose this is when you're using it long-term. ChatGPT can analyze performance data such as uh, assessment scores and assignment grades and identify trends and maybe patterns. Uh, this provides insights that uh, can inform the assessment process, allow teachers to make instructional adjustments and improve learning outcomes for students. The seventh way that you could potentially use ChatGPT for uh, classroom assessment is generating writing prompts. So ChatGPT can generate writing prompts that challenge learners to think critically and creatively. The model can create prompts that are relevant to specific topics, relevant to specific learning objectives, and might be a way that teachers can stretch their own thinking in terms of what an appropriate prompt might be uh, for a particular topic. Uh, the eighth way you could utilize ChatGPT is providing language support. ChatGPT can translate assessments and learning materials into multiple languages enhancing accessibility for learners with different language backgrounds. This can also, the, the model can also provide text-to-speech functionality, which allows learners to access the assessment in a format that suits their, their maybe particular language or their particular uh, 
learning style. I know the, the idea of learning styles has been kind of debunked over the years, but still there may be a way to tailor that, especially those who, um, you know, ELs, et cetera, who struggle with language. So um, this could be very helpful for screening ELs where, you know, often we have to determine, is it a language uh, issue or is it actually a proficiency issue? Many of our language learners are quite competent and quite proficient in particular skills and using chat GPT to translate to find out if I put the question in the student's native language, we may not have somebody on staff who can do that. And so being able to do that could be quite efficient. All right, number nine, uh, predicting learner outcomes. ChatGPT can actually predict learners' future performance based on the feedback and performance data. Now that's again, looking for trends and potentially going forward. We don't necessarily wanna hold students to that because they may exceed the expectations, but there's there's trends and there's ways to sort of predict future performance. So ChatGPT can identify learners who may be at risk of falling behind, uh, maybe offer some interventions and all the ways that they can support them. And the last 10th way, not again, not number 10, but these weren't in any particular order, but um, automating administrative tasks as well. Chat GPT can automate administrative tasks such as scheduling assessments and managing learner data. Uh, this saves a lot of time and a lot of resources, allowing educators to focus on delivering quality learning experiences for students and not getting caught up in the administrative tasks. Now, listen, it's quite possible that you fundamentally disagree with some of those uses, and that's fine. The statement was 10 ways that ChatGPT could be used uh, for classroom assessment. I'm not saying these are 10 ways they should be used, but definitely these are 10 ways you could utilize uh, ChatGPT in the, in the classroom. I mean, ideally, as we move forward, we find ways to blend the efficiency of technology with the effectiveness of human relationships to maximize the opportunities for assessment to serve both the advancement of learning, but also the verification of learning as well. And one more thing, of course, as you probably guessed, those 10 ways to use ChatGPT for classroom assessment were generated by ChatGPT. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events this, this spring uh, and also the new book coming out uh, in April. Next time, March 27th, is episode 100. Hard to believe. Started the podcast in September 2020, and we are now at episode 100. I've got a special guest lined up for that, but I'm going to keep that a mystery for now. Uh, you know, I want to build a little bit of the hype as we, we get toward episode 100. But I am just truly so grateful uh, to all of you who've been longtime listeners and loyal listeners, and those of you who've just recently found the podcast. Uh, it really means a lot to me that, that you come along each week or every other week here in 2023. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts. Again, those ratings and reviews really make a difference in helping you know grow the podcast's reach and trying to raise its profile and helping other people discover the podcast. So I really do appreciate that. And uh, also, if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, uh, on social media. I would certainly appreciate that as well. Have a great week, everyone.